she is leaving home. I'm not going to sing the rest. She's leaving home after living alone for so many years. So goes the lyric to the 1967 Beatles song. And the flip side of that wonderful course, which you should probably know, goes this way. It has the voice of the girl's parents. We gave her most of our lives, sacrificed most of our lives. We gave her everything money could buy. Bye-bye. song's really quite sad. It gives to us two different perspectives. The daughter's perspective is that she's living alone, that her parents don't care much for her. There's no real relationship there. And on the other side of the coin, you have the parents who are saying, we've worked our whole lives. We've given our daughter our very lives. Everything money could buy. And yet she's leaving after living alone for so many years. We can see that the root of the problem is a misunderstanding about that which is truly valuable. At the end of the day, the, the parents' misguided notion that the best way to love their daughter, well, was to give her things, resulted in the fact that all of their work was worthless, meaningless, vanity. We come to Psalm chapter 127 this morning, and Solomon wants us to come to grips with a jarring reality. And it's this. Our perspective on life and on the world typically revolves around us. And what he wants to do is he wants us to view everything from God's perspective. This psalm teaches us a truth which is deeply offensive to our pride. It teaches us that God's work is decisive in the value of our work. God's work God's activity is the decisive factor in the value of our work. He wants us to see that truth and he wants to orient our lives. He wants us to put our eyes on the world from God's perspective. main idea of the psalm is that God is at work for his beloved. God is at work for his beloved, and in response to this truth, I want to exhort you to work hard and rest easy. We'll work through the text in two parts. You will see the vanity of independent living in verses 1 and 2, and then we'll consider the blessing of Christ-dependent living in verses 2 through 5. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together. Father, we ask that you would help us to feel the weight of your presence this morning. That you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask that 
we wouldn't hear the words of a mere man, but your very voice as your word is proclaimed. God, teach us and change us and move us to adoring you. Help us to come this morning and adore the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in his name. Amen. Look with me at Psalm chapter 127, reading from the ESV this morning. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This psalm is clearly separated into two sections. They're so distinct from one another that that many look at this and think, these are two separate poems. How do they fit together exactly? It's plain that something is going on in verses 1 and 2, and then it's almost like the psalm has an identity crisis and just goes a different direction completely in verses 3 through 5. Yet what we'll find as we study this song is that the two halves complete one another. They inform one another. Indeed, the, the teaching of the first two verses is illustrated for us in the last few verses. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's, let's first look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. So observation number one, it's, it's quite simple. The Lord builds. You see that? It says unless the Lord builds, this means that God builds. The Lord builds. The Lord does building, right? Verse two, or I guess it's the second part of verse one. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. So the, the Lord builds and the Lord watches. And we see the builder builds. People build. We build. And the watcher watches. People watch. We watch. And yet it is the Lord's activity that determines the value of the work. Unless the Lord builds the house, well, the work is vanity. Unless the Lord watches over the city, it's vanity. It's, it's pointless. We see something else from, from this perspective. We see the Lord builds and the Lord watches, and, and we can cheat and go ahead into verse 2, where we read, he gives sleep to his beloved. So, so we have three things happening, right? The Lord builds, the Lord watches, the Lord gives sleep. Solomon is giving to us 
a radically God-saturated perspective on reality. It is a God-centered view of life. And right away, we have to kind of reorient ourselves. Because this is not the way most of us think about life. We don't often think about the work that God is doing at one level. We usually just focus on the work we are doing at our level. So one of the first questions I think we ask in response to this psalm, we ask ourselves, do I have a God-saturated view of life? Is my vision centered on Jesus or is it centered on me? Do I focus on what God has done, is doing, and will do? Or do I focus on what I think I can do by way of my own efforts? The psalmist says, focusing on my own efforts, relying on myself, doing my own building and my own watching is vanity. It's worthless unless the Lord is in it. You go, what is being built in verse 1? And I think the, the simple answer to that is just a house. The idea is something is being built, and it's to show us that we as people are, are builders, we're makers, we're creators. When you come to the, the idea of a watchman on a tower, what's a watchman do? He's, he's looking for external threats. He's helping to protect the city. So we have the, this idea of our lives, right, where we work to create, we work to make things. We are people who, who look for meaning in the things that we do. And at the same time, we, we also look for security and peace and protection. What Solomon's saying is that we can achieve in our building, in our making, in our creating, in our careers. And if the Lord's not in it, it's vanity. He's saying we can, can live in a gated community, have our ADT alarm system, money in the bank, and it's vanity. It's vanity if these things come to us, we think, by the work of our own hands. It's vanity to the one who is relying on themselves. And the point really is, is to say this. Rely on the Lord in your work. Because if He's not in it, it won't matter. And then we come to verse 2, so we have those first two things. You have, you have building or creating, and then you have protection. You have watching, security. And we come to verse 2, and we think that there might be a third thing there, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think what we have in verse 2 is, is kind of an arrow, if you want to think of it in your mind, pointing back up to verse 1. What we have in verse 2 is Solomon telling us how not to work. This is what he says. In vain you get up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, the bread of, of sorrows. The picture here is, we can get it, right? 
I, I, I have a job to do, and so I want to acquire for myself those things which are necessary for stability and security. And so I get up early in the morning, and I go to bed late at night. I work the, burn the candle at both ends. I'm trying hard to, to grasp a hold of those things I need to live daily. I'm relying on myself, relying on myself. He says, that's vanity. It's vanity without God. Sure, you, you might get a hold of some material things, but ultimately they are worth nothing. It is in vain that you work your fingers to the bone, relying on yourself. This, this phrase, eating the bread of anxious toil, is weird and wonderful. We, we, we read that, I read it anyway, and I go, what does that even mean, eating the bread of anxious toil? Well, the, the word anxious toil is one word in Hebrew, and it means anxious or burdened, belabored, heavy work. It's hard work. And it's actually the same word that is used back in Genesis 3 when God sentences Eve to pain in childbearing. And it has a, there's a synonym with it that shares the same root that shows up in verse 19 of Genesis 3 that refers to the work that Adam's going to do as he tries to get crops to come up from the ground. It's by means of painful labor, heavy labor, anxious labor. This is work that is done frantically and anxiously. I have to have this done so that I can be secure. Solomon tells us, Working this way is eating the bread of anxious toil. You, you get the picture? Like you, you work and you get bread, and then you eat it and it's not satisfying. You're left empty. It's like trying to, to make a meal of cotton candy. It makes your stomach feel a little sick. And it doesn't satisfy. The bread of, of anxious toil ultimately, at the end of the day, eating the bread of anxious toil, working in this way, how we shouldn't work, is living without any reference to God. It's an independence that is centered on ourselves. We work independently of anybody else. You know, is it Destiny's Child that had a song back in the day? You know, All the women who were independent, throw your hands up at me, right? And they say, now, I'm independent, and one of the lines is, is, I depend on me, you know, and everybody dances. And Solomon's saying, that's a bad way to go about life. He's saying, because you need to depend on the Lord. Otherwise, you're, you're going to be eating the bread of anxious toil. So how do we eat this bread? I think, I think some of us go about eating the bread of anxious toil by looking for our identity in the way that we create and make. We look for our identity 
in our careers or in the things that we do. And so what happens is, is we, we wrap up who we are and our sense of self-worth in our work. So we, we find identity in uh, being a doctor, in being a lawyer, in being a homemaker, in being a businessman, in being a volunteer, in being a whatever. And this is where we look for our sense of, of meaning and of worth. We evaluate our value based on our performance. This is eating the bread of anxious toil. Others of us look for security in external things. And we think to ourselves, if I can get enough money, money is usually the how the God of security shows up in our lives. If I get enough money, if I get enough resources, then my family can be safe and happy. Friends, that's not going to satisfy ultimately. You'll never have enough. I mean, even, even celebrities understand this. I, I love this Jim Carrey quote. Says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. I'm going to have all the money, all the resources in the world and still be unsatisfied. You can work hard and reach the very pinnacle of your career you know, retire, have, have you know, Jeff Bezos kind of money, get on your yacht, Park it somewhere very tropical and still be left empty. It's for good reason that we are warned in 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And we might add, eating the bread of anxious toil. Others of us eat the bread of anxious toil simply by committing ourselves to worry. We worry about absolutely everything. We're worried about the economy and the country and the kids and our jobs and the clog in the sink. Worried about everything, all the time. We find ourselves anxious and never at rest. I have to confess, I, I was studying this text this week and this particular eating the bread of anxious toil just sat, I don't know, it struck me. Thinking, well, how do I do this? And this is, the, this is the category I put myself in here. Sometimes I, I will joke with Mike or David and some others of you that I suffer from ministry hypochondria. If you know what a hypochondriac is, you get the sense of it. Or I'll sit back and I'll, I'll look at my own desires for the church and for my life and my ministry, and then I will think of all the many things that could go wrong and then act as if they will go wrong result of that is usually some sleepless nights and some internal churn and restlessness. And even in the midst of that worry, if you ask me, 
you know, brother, Braun, are you, are you trusting the Lord? I would say, yes, of course I'm trusting God. But I think the reality of my situation would be I've begun eating the bread of anxious toil. I wonder, how do you eat the bread of anxious toil? What gives you that internal churn? Where do you put your attention that results in a lack of peace? How are you putting forth your effort in a way that is independent of anything God might do? We read earlier in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us not to worry about anything. It says that God will provide for our daily needs. Indeed, God will give us our daily bread. Our responsibility is to seek his kingdom first. Nevertheless, we worry. We're supposed to receive daily bread from God, and yet we pick up the bread of anxious toil time and and time again. And so we ask, well, what, what is the antidote? If this is how I'm not supposed to work, Solomon, how... How am I supposed to work? How do I get away from eating the bread of anxious toil? And this is how he answers. Second part of verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for or because he, that's the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. And so we have the reason that it's vanity to work that way, but we also have an alternative way to live. We can live as the person who is resting in, relying on the Lord. You see, Solomon's not saying it's bad to work hard. The problem here, the contrast here, is the difference between an attitude that is self-focused and self-dependent and an attitude that is God-focused and God-dependent. So the antidote is recognizing that God calls you, Christian, beloved. If you like to write in your Bible like I do, you can circle his beloved. Because that is what allows the person who's trusting in him to rest. question that we have to ask, if it's his beloved who rests, we need to understand who is loved by God? Who is God's beloved? Well, it's the one who relies upon the Lord. This is the one who comes to Jesus. It is the one who eats the bread of life. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, the bread of life, gives lasting satisfaction to all who come to him. All who come to Christ are his beloved. All who come to Christ enjoy his rest. That's what he says after all in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all you eating the bread of anxious toil, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Notice there is a yoke here. Jesus is calling us to an exchange. Saying, I'll break the yoke of sin and slavery from your neck and you can put my yoke on your shoulders. I will be your master. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus promises to all who will come to him satisfaction and rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil will leave your stomach empty. It will leave you lying awake at night. But the bread of life? Oh, it will satisfy you. It will allow you to sleep, to rest. Friends, this rest that's held out by Jesus and offered to whoever will repent of their sin and put their faith in Him was purchased for you at the cost of His very life. Jesus can give us rest because He lived a perfect life in our place died a substitutionary death on the cross where he hung restlessly gasping for air, covered in blood. He can give us rest because he took God's wrath, the wrath that we rightly deserve. He took the wrath of all who will put their faith in him so that we can rest and have peace with God. Friend, you will never find rest in your career. You will never find peace and security in all the money the world has to offer. Your worry can never set you free. It can't give you length of days. But Jesus, His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And He can give you rest gives rest. All those who come to Christ are His beloved. You, Christian, are loved by God. I love how this is illustrated for us in Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you, listen to that word keep, it's going to come up again. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. The Lord holds the whole world in his hands and he holds his people in his arms. The Lord keeps his beloved and we can sleep and rest because God is awake. We do not need to eat the bread of anxious toil and burn the candle at both ends because God is working even when we are resting. I actually love how this shows up in the Bible over and over again when people are... Yeah, you, got, you understand that sleep here, it doesn't necessarily mean literal sleep, right? It's a picture of how we rest in and rely on God. I love how throughout the rest of the Bible, we have pictures of God working in the lives of people while they sleep. You think about it, uh, Adam can't find a helper suitable for him. So God puts him to sleep, and then God gets to work. Adam wakes up, and behold, woman! Or Abraham in Genesis 15. He, he cuts the animals in half. He, he's cutting a covenant with God. And God puts Abraham to sleep and passes between the parts of the animals and makes a covenant with himself. Or maybe you think of Peter in Acts chapter 12. He, he's in prison and he's literally he's sleeping and he thinks he's having a dream as an angel breaks him out of prison. And all of a sudden he comes to his senses in the street and he's like, huh, I'm, I'm out of prison. Here's the point. God works on behalf of his beloved. Everything that God has ordained to come to pass will come to pass. Anything that happens to any of us, good or bad, comes to us in accord with the sovereign will of God. What this means is that we can delight in and depend on God as we work. Right? This passage, again, is not saying that we should adopt the way of the sluggard. Right? Proverbs 13.4, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now we, we are called to work relying on God's work, trusting that the ultimate result or the outcome of our work isn't dependent on us, but on the Lord. We're to work, as we're told to in Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work at it heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
You are serving the Lord Christ. See, we can work hard and rest easy because the outcome doesn't depend on us. God's activity is the decisive factor in the result of all work. It's success or it's failure. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. This is such a relief. You understand it's a huge relief? You can put your hand to the plow and work really, really hard and then you can rest easy because you know the result is going to be up to God. That means you can stop living like Atlas with the world on your back. Start enjoying the rest given by Jesus. I love the way that Mark illustrates this in his gospel in chapter 4. This is the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. This is an image of the Christian life and of your life. You go about being faithful to what God has said, scattering the seed of the gospel in this parable, and the ultimate result comes from God. You can do your work relying on the Lord and then you can rest knowing that God will give the harvest or not. The result is up to His working. This is a huge relief. We can work hard and rest easy because as Christians, we are God's beloved. And we know that God works for his beloved. Love what J.I. Packer says. He says, wherever we are not consciously relying on God, there we shall inevitably be found relying on ourselves. So the, the application here is to delight in being God's beloved and to depend on God in all of your work, actively, because it's so true where we are not, you know, making a concentrated effort to rely on the Lord, we slip back into trying to rely on ourselves. That brings us to the second section. Verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed, maybe it should just be said blessed, huh? Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. How on earth does this relate to the first section? I thought a lot about this. It's actually really interesting. Um, Most of you know that puns are the highest form of humor and should be appreciated wherever they're found. 
And the Hebrew language is full of puns. They loved it. There's actually a pun here that helps connect the two sections. Uh, It happens in verse 1, and then again in verse 3. The Hebrew word plays between the Hebrew word bonim, which I probably mispronounced, but you don't know that. Bonim, which means builders, and banim, which means sons or children. Bonim, banim. Additionally, something else is going on here, right? In verse 1, we have the building of a house. And then in verse 3, we have the building of a house. Think about how uh, David says to the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to build you a house, God, a temple. And the Lord says to David, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a house. It means a family lineage. So what we have here is that you want to get, the question is, well, how, how does the Lord work on behalf of his beloved? And so here is, is the answer. He builds for them. And he protects them. Right? The Lord gives children. They're, they're a heritage, a blessing from God. You might ask yourself, right, what happens when the builder comes home from a long day of building? Or the watchman comes home from a, a long night of watching and they're resting in the Lord, relying on the Lord. Well, he, he goes to bed. He wakes and behold, children. Yeah. There is a sort of parental work at one level that brings about children. And then there is God's work at another level entirely that brings about children. They they work, rest, and God brings about the result or not. Here we we have not not a promise, but a picture of a life dependent upon the Lord. It it isn't a promise that, that every person who ever desires to have children will have children. This doesn't mean that if you are a Christian and you you desire to to have a son or a daughter and you don't, that it's because you've been unfaithful. That's not what the text is teaching. Why why does God give give some people the blessing of children and not others? Why why does he withhold good gifts from some and not others? I, I don't know. But I do know it's not because he's angry at you. You're his beloved Christian. And he is working everything together for your good and his glory. God entrusts different people with different gifts. But we do need to see in this example of a life relying on the God, the righteous man who's relying on the Lord and his work, who's resting in the work of God, the fact that children are a blessing. Children are a blessing. This flies in the face of our culture's thinking on the issue. Children are are seen as a a burden to parents. 
and a plight upon the environment. In fact, some people even think that if you have kids, that, that it's an assault on the environment. It's an unloving thing to do. We must, we must reject this satanic way of thinking. We must reject any notion that child sacrifice makes the world a better place. Our culture celebrates and propagates the killing of children in the womb. But the Bible tells us children are a gift from God. It tells us that children are people made in the image of God, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. We must honor them appropriately. Children are a blessing. Quick sidebar here. If you've had an abortion, I need you to know three things. One, it's a terrible sin. Two, Jesus loves and forgives sinners. Three, Rockfish Valley Baptist Church is filled with loved and forgiven sinners. You fit right in. Jesus is not mad at you. You don't have to hide from him. He loves you. It's the end of the sidebar. Children are a blessing. They're a gift. And some gifts, they're also responsibilities, aren't they? It's like, I don't know about you, sometimes at birthdays or Christmas time, people get me these gifts that are also responsibilities. Like, hey, we got you a 4,000-piece Lego set for, for your kid. What a great gift. Yeah, it's great. Usually with those kind of things, you know, assembly required. If it comes and you have to assemble it, I quickly try to find Chelsea and say, you're going to put this together? And if she doesn't know how, I see if I can con someone else into it. And if I can't, I try to find a way to return it. I don't want that responsibility. Children are similar. You can't return them. But they're a gift and a responsibility. Friends, we who are parents must labor, must work hard at teaching our children the gospel, at teaching them that they were made to know and love God that they've sinned against God, deserve the wrath of God. And yet God, even though they were sinners, sent Jesus Christ to die for them. For all who will put their faith in Him. We need to teach our children to follow God. Children, you are a blessing to your parents. If you're here and you're a kid, you can remind mom and dad on the way home, I am a blessing. Don't let them forget it. 
Children are a blessing and a responsibility, parents. Don't forget that they are a blessing. And do not neglect to teach them the ways of the Lord. What about this next part, verses 3 through 5? I'm sorry, 4 and 5. Read, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Well, let's go back to verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so, verse 3, we have the Lord building the, the house. But the second part, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What's the watchman providing security? And now in these verses, verses 4 and 5, what are the sons, the children of the man providing? Security. This is how God works in the life of the person who is relying on him. He gives him what he, what he needs ultimately. We're just, we're just to see that God is faithful to meet the needs of his people. I love what uh, Derek Kidner says on these verses. He says, The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they're a quiverful. I thought that was fun. But you can, the, the city gate thing might be a little confusing. This is where justice was adjudicated where matters of um, dispute were, were figured out was at the city gate. And so we actually have an image here of, of a man standing before his enemies, and you maybe like in your head picture like five dots as enemies. And then behind him, we have his sons. We'll pretend he's Jacob and there's 12 sons. And they're pointed at these enemies like arrows. There is protection, his entourage, his, his muscle. They're going to keep him from being put to shame. And all of this comes from God's work. From God's work. God gives to his people family, houses, and protection. And that he gives them to us now. Some of you are going, wait a minute here. But listen, listen to what Jesus says in Mark 10. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Many who are first will be last in the last first. There's a lot to unpack there. We're not going to focus on much of it except for the part where Jesus says, if you are in me, if you are following me, you receive now in this life mothers, brothers, children, houses, lands. What does he mean? Well, he means that when you come to him, you also come into his family. The family of God is the church. By virtue of our union with Christ, we are also united together. There is a reason we call one another brother and sister. We've come into the family of God. 
God gives to those who are relying on Him, family. He also builds them into a house. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles who had been separated for hundreds of years and they're trying to worship in the same church and figure that out. And he comes to them and says, you have been made one new man in Jesus Christ. One body. You share one spirit. You share common citizenship in heaven. Indeed, God is building you together as his house, as his holy temple. Love 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? God builds his people into a family. God builds his people into a house. And God protects his people from our adversary making sure that we will never be put to shame. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One who believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him, on Jesus, will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Friends, this means that when we stand before the judgment seat of God and our accuser stands up to point the finger at us because of all of our sins and our unrighteousness, none of those accusations will stick. Because we have an intercessor in Christ. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. Indeed, Jesus is the Son through whom God gives true and lasting security and protection to all His people. Friends, we can set our minds on the things of heaven and not on the things of earth. Because we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We don't have to worry about all the circumstances that change each and every day around us. Because we know God has worked, is working, and will continue to work on our behalf. God works for His beloved. And that's you, Christian. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? None! There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you drop down to verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God's beloved. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God 
and intercedes for us. We can work hard and rest easy because God works for us. His beloved. Church, spit out the bread of anxious toil. It won't satisfy. Spit out the bread of anxious toil and fill your bellies with the wine of celebration and the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we give our attention to it, meditate upon it, that you show us yourself in it. We pray that you would make us a people who are not self-reliant, but Christ-reliant. That you would make us a people free from the bondage of performance. People that are at rest in Christ. Trusting that you are at work. And that indeed, no house stands or falls apart from your will. Lord, help us to rely on you and to trust you no matter what circumstances befall us this week. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have loved us. How can it be that you would love sinners like us and ransom us to yourself at the expense of the blood of Christ? This is gloriously good news. We thank you. Amen.